This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton. Section 15. Chapter 5. Browning in Later Life. Part 2. His manner in society, as has been more than once indicated, was that of a man anxious, if anything, to avoid the air of intellectual imminence. Lockhart said briefly, I like Browning. He isn't at all like a damned literary man. He was, according to some, upon occasion, talkative and noisy to a fault. But there are two kinds of men who monopolize conversation. The first kind are those who like the sound of their own voice. The second are those who do not know what the sound of their own voice is like. Browning was one of the latter class. His volubility in speech had the same origin as his voluminousness and obscurity in literature, a kind of headlong humility. He cannot assuredly have been aware that he had talked people down or have wished to do so, for this would have been precisely a violation of the ideal of the man of the world. The one ambition and even weakness that he had, he wished to be a man of the world, and he never in the full sense was one. He remained a little too much of a boy, a little too much even of a Puritan, and a little too much of what may be called a man of the universe, to be a man of the world. One of his faults, probably, was the thing roughly called prejudice. On the question, for example, of table-turning and psychic phenomena, he was, in a certain degree, fierce and irrational. He was not, indeed, as we shall see when we come to study Sludge the Medium, exactly prejudiced against spiritualism, but he was, beyond all question, stubbornly prejudiced against spiritualists. Whether the medium, home, was or was not a scoundrel, is somewhat difficult in our day to conjecture, but in so far as he claimed supernatural powers, he may have been an honest gentleman as ever lived, and even if we think that the moral atmosphere of home is that of a man of dubious character, we can still feel that Browning might have achieved his purpose without making it so obvious that he thought so. Some traces, again, though much fainter ones, may be found of something like a subconscious hostility to the Roman Church or at least a less full comprehension of the grandeur of the Latin religious civilization than might have been expected of a man of Browning's great imaginative tolerance. Aestheticism, bohemianism, the irresponsibilities of the artist, the untidy morals of Grub Street and the Latin Quarter, he hated with a consuming hatred. He was himself exact in everything, from his scholarship to his clothes, and even when he wore the loose white garments of the lounger in southern Europe, they were in their own way as precise as a dress suit. This extra carefulness in all things he defended against the cant of bohemianism as the right attitude for the poet. When someone excused coarseness or negligence on the ground of genius, he said, That is an error, noblesse oblige. Browning's prejudices, however, belonged altogether to that healthy order which is characterized by a cheerful and satisfied ignorance. It never does a man any very great harm to hate a thing that he knows nothing about. It is the hating of a thing when we do know something about it which corrodes the character. 
we all have a dark feeling of resistance towards people we have never met and a profound and manly dislike of the authors we have never read it does not harm a man to be certain before opening the books that whitman is an obscene ranter or that stevenson is a mere trifler with style it is the man who can think these things after he has read the books who must be in a fair way to mental perdition prejudice in fact is not so much the great intellectual sin as the thing which we may call to coin a word post judas not the bias before the fair trial but the bias that remains afterwards with browning's swift and emphatic manner the bias was almost always formed before he had gone into the matter but almost all men he really knew he admired almost all the books he had really read he enjoyed he stands preeminent among those great universalists who praised the ground they trod on and commended existence like any other material in its samples he had no kinship with those new and strange universalists of the type of tolstoy who praised existence to the exclusion of all the institutions they have lived under and all the ties they have known he thought the world good because he had found so many things that were good in it religion the nation the family the social class he did not like the new humanitarian think the world good because he had found so many things in it that were bad as has been previously suggested there was something very queer and dangerous that underlay all the good humour of browning if one of these idle prejudices were broken by better knowledge he was all the better pleased but if some of the prejudices that were really rooted in him were trodden on even by accident such as his aversion to loose artistic cliques or his aversion to undignified publicity his rage was something wholly transfiguring and alarming something far removed from the shrill disapproval of carlyle and ruskin it can only be said that he became a savage and not always a very agreeable or presentable savage the indecent fury which danced upon the bones of edward fitzgerald was a thing which ought not to have astonished anyone who had known much of browning's character or even of his work some unfortunate persons on another occasion had obtained some of mrs browning's letters shortly after her death and proposed to write a life founded upon them they ought to have understood that browning would probably disapprove but if he talked to him about it as he did to others and it is exceedingly probable that he did they must have thought he was mad what i suffer with the paws of these blackguards in my bowels you can fancy he says again he writes think of this beast working away not deeming my feelings or those of her family worthy of notice it shall not be done if i can stop the scamp's knavery along with his breath whether browning actually resorted to this extreme course is unknown nothing is known except that he wrote a letter to the ambitious biographer which reduced him to silence probably from stupefaction the same peculiarity ought as i have said to have been apparent to anyone who knew anything of browning's literary work a great number of his poems are marked by a trait of which by its nature it is more or less impossible to give examples suffice it to say that it is truly extraordinary that poets like swinburne who seldom uses a gross word 
should have been spoken of as if they had introduced moral license into Victorian poetry. What the nonconformist conscience has been doing to have passed Browning is something difficult to imagine. But the peculiarity of this occasional coarseness in his work is this, that it is always used to express a certain wholesome fury and contempt for things sickly or ungenerous or unmanly. The poet seems to feel that there are some things so contemptible that you can only speak of them in pothouse words. It would be idle and perhaps undesirable to give examples, but it may be noted that the same brutal physical metaphor is used by his Caponsacchi about the people who could imagine Pompilia impure, and by his Shakespeare in At the Mermaid about the claim of the Byronic poet to enter into the heart of humanity. In both cases Browning feels, and perhaps in a manner rightly, that the best thing we can do with a sentiment essentially base is to strip off its affectations and state it basely, and that the mud of Chaucer is a great deal better than the poison of Stern. Here and again Browning is close to the average man, and to do the average man justice there is a great deal more of this Browning-esque hatred of Byronism in the brutality of his conversation than many people suppose. Such, roughly, and as far as we can discover, was the man who, in the full summer and even the full autumn of his intellectual powers, began to grow upon the consciousness of the English literary world about this time. For the first time, friendship grew between him and the other great men of his time, Tennyson, for whom he then and always felt the best and most personal kind of admiration, came into his life, and along with him Gladstone and Francis Palgrave. There began to crowd in upon him those honours whereby a man is to some extent made a classic in his lifetime, so that he is honoured even if he is unread. He was made a fellow of Balliol in 1867, and the homage of the great universities continued thenceforth unceasingly until his death, despite many refusals on his part. He was unanimously elected Lord Rector of Glasgow University in 1875. He declined, owing to his deep and somewhat characteristic aversion to formal public speaking, and in 1877 he had to decline on similar grounds the similar offer from the University of St. Andrews. He was much at the English universities, was a friend of Dr. Jowett, and enjoyed the university life at the age of sixty-three in a way that he probably would not have enjoyed it if he had ever been to university. The great universities would not let him alone, to their great credit, and he became a D.C.L. of Cambridge in 1879, and a D.C.L. of Oxford in 1882. When he received these honours, there were, of course, the traditional buffooneries of the undergraduates, and one of them dropped a red cotton nightcap neatly on his head as he passed under the gallery. Some indignant intellectuals wrote to him a protest against this affront. But Browning took the matter in the best and most characteristic way. You are far too hard, he wrote in answer, on the very harmless drolleries of the young men. Indeed, there used to be a regularly appointed jester, Phileas Terra, he was called, whose business it was to jibe and jeer at the honoured ones by way of reminder that all human glories are merely gilded baubles, and must not be fancied metal. In this 
there are other and deeper things characteristic of browning beside his learning and humour in discussing anything he must always fall back upon a great speculative and eternal idea even in the tomfoolery of a horde of undergraduates he can only see a symbol of the ancient office of ridicule in the scheme of morals the young men themselves were probably unaware that they were the representatives of the filius terra but the years during which browning was thus reaping some of his late laurels began to be filled with incidents that reminded him how the years were passing over him in june twentieth eighteen sixty six his father had died a man of whom it is impossible to think without a certain emotion a man who had lived quietly and persistently for others to whom browning owed more than it is easy to guess to whom we in all probability mainly owe browning in eighteen sixty eight one of his closest friends arabella barrett the sister of his wife died as her sister had done alone with browning browning was not a superstitious man he somewhat stormily prided himself on the contrary but he notes at this time a dream which arabella had of her in which she prophesied their meeting in five years that is of course the meeting of elizabeth and arabella his friend milsan to whom sordello was dedicated died in eighteen eighty six i never knew said browning or ever shall know his like among men but though both fame and growing isolation indicated that he was passing towards the evening of his days though he bore traces of the progress in a milder attitude towards things and a greater preference for long exiles with those he loved one thing continued in him with unconquerable energy there was no diminution in the quantity no abatement in the immense designs of his intellectual output in eighteen seventy one he produced belaustian's adventure a work exhibiting not only his genius in its highest condition of power but something more exacting even than genius to a man of his mature and changed life immense investigation prodigious memory the thorough assimilation of the vast literature of a remote civilization. Belaustian's adventure, which is, of course, the mere framework for an English version of the Aselstius of Euripides, is an illustration of one of Browning's finest traits, his immeasurable capacity for a classic admiration. Those who knew him tell us that in conversation he never revealed himself so impetuously or so brilliantly as when declaiming the poetry of others. And Belaustian's adventure is a monument of this fiery self-forgetfulness. It is penetrated with the passionate desire to render Euripides worthily, and to that imitation are for the time being devoted all the gigantic powers which went to make the songs of Pippa and the last agony of Guido. Browning never put himself into anything more powerfully or more successfully yet it is only an excellent translation in the uncouth philosophy of caliban in the tangled ethics of sludge in his wildest satire in his most feather-headed lyric browning was never more thoroughly browning than in this splendid and unselfish plagiarism this revived excitement in greek matters his passionate love of the greek language continued in him thenceforward till his death he published more than one poem on the drama of Hellas. Aristophanes' Apology 
came out in 1875, and the Agamemnon of Aeschylus, another paraphrase, in 1877. All three poems are marked by the same primary characteristic, the fact that the writer has literature of Athens literally at his fingers' ends. He is intimate not only with their poetry and politics, but with their frivolity and their slang, and he knows not only Athenian wisdom, but Athenian folly, not only the beauty of Greece, but even its vulgarity. In fact, a page of Aristophanes' Apology is like a page of Aristophanes, dark with levity and as obscure as a schoolman's treatise with its load of jokes. End of section 15